I know somebody's got an extra oxygen tank out there. Hallelujah. Ripped straight from the pages of Scripture. That is one of our choir's most beloved and most hated songs all at once, I think. There's so many parts, and uh, sometimes we just pick a part and roll with it, but I hope you remember all those things. We are here because we serve a holy God who built a bridge, and He is the one that lifts our head, is our shield, our defender, our strength, and is still sitting on the throne. Let me just tell you guys this before we begin. You have defied the odds tonight. Did you know that? You have defied the odds because historically, throughout a week of revival, do you know what the worst night for attendance is? Monday. Well, we just shot that one in the foot. Praise the Lord. If I got to preach after singing that many songs, it might as well be a full house. And I am so glad to see you here tonight, all of you Monday night revivalists. You ready to be revived again? How many of you had one of them normal Mondays where just everything just got on your toes, got on your nerves, got under your skin? Go on and say amen. Amen. So many of y'all told me that. And you know what? That's a good thing. Because I know for God's children that suffering is a prelude to glory. The devil got on you today because he knew something big was going to happen tonight. And I hope it's already happening in your hearts. I hope that this music, this time of prayer, just being in the presence of other brothers and sisters have revived you all. Because I don't know about y'all, it's just good to be in the house of the Lord. Knowing what's going on outside these walls, at least I feel safe for the next four hours or so. <laughs> I will say this, no, no, look, I'll spare you. Listen, y'all came out on a Monday night, you've defied the odds, you're my Monday night revivalist, so I'll cut it from four hours to two. How about that? All right? But listen, sit back, relax, pick up your Bible, because I, here, here's what I want to tell you. No matter who stands in a pulpit... If you don't have the Word in front of you, how do you know if what they're saying is accurate? Folks, let me tell you something. Don't ever trust a man because that's all I am. That's all any of us preachers are. Be sure you've got and that you're following along so you know what's happening. I've got to tell you this as we begin, though. And go ahead, if you will, and just turn to 2 Samuel. We're going to get there in a little while. But as you turn to 2 Samuel, and it's right there between Genesis and Revelation, I just wanted to share with you something that I learned just today. Now, whenever you go to a revival somewhere, you are supposed to pick on the pastor of that church, right? Y'all all expect it. And listen, I don't want to let you down. I've been picking on Herbert ever since I got here, and I've been looking forward to it ever since he called me and asked me to do a revival. He called me several months ago, and he said, Can you come do another revival for us in the fall? I said, Sure. You done killed him again. I'll come revive him. That's no problem. <laughs> but I've been ragging Herbert since I got here. And I don't mean it, because I'm going to tell you something. That's as good a man's ever walked the earth. And, and, and I'm going to tell you this. He is the visitingest pastor. Go ahead. He is the lovingest pastor. And i got to tell you, I shared this story in 2011 when I did revival here. He has always been a mentor and a friend and a brother to me. He doesn't remember this event, but I used to run around with my dad who did wedding photography for many, many years. I was probably about 10 years old, and Herbert was doing a wedding. My dad was doing the photography, and I was with Dad running an extra flash for him just to make the pictures look a little more full. And I remember Herbert was four times the man he is today. Literally, that was a big old fella, great teddy bear. But I will tell you this, and I remember it. I remember it, and I'm telling you this for a reason. You remember it and do the same. He treated me at that time, even as a 10, 11-year-old kid, as another human being. He was trying to do a wedding. The bride's mother was bridezilla instead of the bride. It was just one of them kind of weddings. He had a lot going on. 
But he took time for a little blonde-headed kid, because at that time I still had blonde hair. He took time for me, and I remember that big old bear hook, and I remember him making over me. But I want you to know I remember that, and I'm telling you this for this reason, to tell you that it is a great honor to be in this man's pulpit. It is a great honor to be sort of his Timothy in the faith, if you will, because I tell you, we have bounced some things off each other. To have him as a Barnabas who encourages me often, but also to tell you this, take time with the young people. It's part of our problem today is that we've gotten too busy and they've become too aggravating. We need to put time into these young as they're our future. And I, for one, want to say thank you very much, Herbert, for what you did for me, even as a kid, even though you were just being Herbert. Thank you. But, you know, I was supposed to pick on him, and I was running material. I mean, I got something for tomorrow and Wednesday and Thursday, but I was like, what am I going to share tonight? So I realized he was from South Carolina. Me and him and Corey were talking at the Golden Corral the other day, and I said, you know what? In this information age, I'll do a background check on it. I'll find out some people that know him, and I'll get the real scoop. And I'm going to tell you what I found out. I found out why Herbert went into the ministry and where his love for turkey hunting came from, all in one fell swoop from one elderly pastor. True, let me tell you this story. Well, it really ain't true, but let me tell you anyway. (laughs) Y'all know Herbert loves turkey hunting so much that he's got a big old white turkey right on the back of his red Ford pickup truck. Several times it looks just like him, but it's right there on the back of his truck. And you know it's Herbert's truck when you see a Ford with a big white turkey. And the man loves Go in his office down the hall here. He's got a 23-and-a-half-pounder. He's got spread. Isn't that right? 23-and-a-half-pound spread out. Got a beautiful picture of it. Had one-and-a-half-inch spurs, big old beard. on Just an amazing turkey. The man loves hunting turkey. He loves killing turkey. He loves eating turkey. And so he is a bona fide turkey. He loves it. But that being said... I got in touch with this old fella. He was telling me this story about little Herbie Brown. Little Herbie Brown was a young fella. He was out in the woods just playing around like he always did. And if y'all don't know Herbert that well, you might not know it, but anytime he can get his hand on a little stick, he's just running around with a little stick. I don't know what he's doing with it, but he's just running around with a little stick. And we'll share more of that this week. But he was running through the woods like kids do, wandering, and he heard something that changed his life forever. It was a call of a big old gobbler. He heard it, and he had never heard it before, and it changed him. He said, what is that heavenly sound? Well, he starts slinking through the woods to figure out what it was. He looks up, and he sees this beautiful turkey, big old Tom turkey. It made that 23-and-a-half pounder he'd killed look like nothing. It made it look like a little old banner hen. So anyway, he sneaks up on that thing. He said, man, I got to kill that turkey. I don't know why, but I have just got the urge to kill that turkey. See, he was not the man of restraint and self-control that he is today. Something tells me I got to kill this turkey. So he sneaks up on this turkey, and just when that turkey turns his head, he hit that thing so hard with a stick, and it about turned it into dumplings right there. He hit that turkey so hard, he knocked his head off, and it happened so fast, the turkey didn't even know what was going on. He was still using his head to peck around for dirt, I mean, scratching the ground. He picked that turkey up, and he said, man, alive, this is going to be delicious. He found him an old gana sack, he threw it over his back, and he starts walking back home, and then it hit him. Guilt. Started to feel a little guilty. He said, man, I, I didn't kill this turkey, and it didn't belong to me. It was in a pen, so it must have belonged to somebody else. <laughs> so, so what does he do? He goes down the road a little piece, and uh, he, he heads into the pastor's office. He said, Pastor, I've done something real bad. 
What'd you do, little Herbie? I'm sure it won't that bad. He said, I killed another man's turkey. He said, oh, that's awful, Herbie. What in the world were you thinking? He said, listen, and uh, he said, I, I've got it in this sack. You want it? He said, of course I don't want it. You need to make this right, Herbie. You take that turkey right back to its owner. Tell him what you've done and offer it back to him. and Tell him you're sorry. He said, you don't want it? He said, I didn't tell you I don't want it. He said, take it back to the owner and tell him. He said, well, I did that, and the owner refused it. <laughs> Preacher said, well, I reckon you just take it on home to your mama and enjoy the turkey. It's yours if he refused it. But don't do nothing like that no more, little Herbie. So Herbert walks out, and from that moment on, he decided he wanted to be a minister of the gospel. He said, if any man can be that forgiving and that loving, I'm going to be a preacher too. That preacher finished his day's work. He got home to find out his Tom was dead. Shame on you, little Herbie. And unlike these things that we're talking about this week, unlike us, that turkey couldn't be revived. But the Lord forgave him, and I'm sure the pastor came to forgive him too. I hope you at least took him a fried turkey leg. But that being said, we started off on Sunday morning understanding that we are here for revival. you got a lot of other things you could have been doing so far this week. you got a lot of things you could have been doing tonight, like kicking your feet up in a lazy boy and getting over a really rough day, which all of you just confessed to have. But you're here because you understand we're here for revival, and not just services, but genuine revival. But I started off on Sunday morning saying, listen, we need to define that thing. Because revival happens all the time, or so we say, but I don't see much result. What's happened is a lot of revival services. I wanted to define it so we could have revival. Revival, according to Webster's Dictionary, just simply says to revive. Well, that don't tell you much, does it? So I looked it up and dug a little further, and it means to breathe new life. New life into something that is dead and or dying. And I'll tell you something. After all, our country is dying. Our culture's dying. Our world is dying. But we honed in on five specific fallen comrades that we're going to talk about this week. And we've kept the death watch over them, and we will continue until the end of this revival. Those five fallen comrades were righteousness, which was dead and gone, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason. I think through them as I list them again, and I would like for you to consider whether or not you think they're alive and kicking or just about dead. Do you think responsibility is alive and kicking or about dead? What about reason, responsibility, respect, and restraint? I think anybody, even the casual observer, would look and say that, no, those things really don't exist anymore. You see, those were the pillars of the early church. Those were the pillars of a fledgling nation 238 years ago. And those were the things that earned God's blessings for our country and the church for so many thousands of years. And yet, in our country, over the past 238 years, they became old-fashioned. We stopped nourishing them. We stopped taking care of them. And as I said on Sunday, the only thing that's going to live is that which you feed. And so since we didn't feed righteousness, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason, they died a miserable death or are dying a miserable death of starvation. And it's our fault. Now, we can put it on those out there that don't know the Lord if we want to, but they don't know any better. We do. And we are the ones that pull the trigger or are about to pull the trigger on all five of these precious things 
from our lives. But here's the beautiful thing. If you've read Hosea 13, Ezekiel 37, John 11, or any of the Gospels, if you've read the book of Revelation, you know with my God, death ain't final. What about yours? Because if with you and your God, death is final, you don't know my God. You don't know the God that in Genesis 1-1 created the heavens and the earth. Because doggone it, if he can do that by just a thought, ex nihilo, out of nothing, he can bring the dead back to life. That's no big thing, is it? So I am convinced that if we can breathe new life into righteousness, restraint, respect, responsibility, and reason, otherwise known as common sense, I believe that God will allow them to live. In other words, I believe that if revival is to come, it's on the back of the church. And I believe it will be because of the actions you commit when you leave this week, whether or not you determine by your actions to breathe new life into these five fallen comrades. But I began by telling you on Sunday morning, all of them died from the same disease. It would do us no good to talk about these five that have fallen, which are basically just symptoms of the real problem. I told you that they all died because of a lack of a relationship with our sovereign God. Either we have a surface relationship with Him, or even as Christians we have no relationship with Him at all. And that's sad. It's sad that we're walking around wearing His name and don't know Him a bit more than we do Methuselah. And if we do, it sure ain't showing. What a shame. So I told you that if you expect any of these other things to come back to life, the first thing that's got to come back to life is your relationship with God. Because Ecclesiastes 12.13 from Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, says this, This is the whole duty of man, to fear God and keep His commandments. And that word fear means to respect, revere, love, and cherish a relationship with Him. And so I'm just going to tell you, if you want to know the meaning of life, it's pretty simple. Relationship with God. A close relationship with God. If you miss that, you've missed it all and nothing else is going to work. Further, we find Jesus saying in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, that the greatest command out of all the commands, everything else you read in the Bible hangs on one thing, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. In other words, love all you got. That's why God puts you here, just to love you and for you to love Him back. And I don't know about you, but it seems like my reasonable service, the least I could do. But I know if God allowed Solomon to put that there, that that was the whole duty of man, was to have a relationship with Him and keep His commandments. And Jesus confirmed it again thousands of years later and says that's the number one command and you can hang the rest of them on it. I know it must be important. In fact, I would tell you it's the most important thing in your life. And if tonight you don't have a relationship with the Creator, it's a high time that you found Him. Because I'm going to tell you, He loves you so very much that He sent His only begotten Son to die on a cruel cross, a torture device for you. I am so glad to know that I am a whosoever. How about you? Amen. As we look towards that, I want you to just... Remember how I told you to gain and develop a stronger relationship with the Lord. What did I tell you? Pick up his love letter and read it. I read the sappiest love letter anybody's ever heard that my wife gave me several years ago here on Sunday. Man, that's some good stuff. Made me feel like I'm the man. And I know I'm not. I work for the man, but I ain't the man. But that love letter's some good stuff. Man, she talked about how wonderful and handsome and loving. What a good father I was. I mean, that was good stuff, wasn't it? If you heard it, man, that was good. It was honey dripping off that paper as I was reading it. 
read it often to remember how much she loves me, to remember the things that she loves about me, and by default to remember what I shouldn't do. Because if that's what she loves, I don't need to be doing the opposite, right? It's right there. You want a relationship with the only one that matters? Pick up the love letter. Tells you everything he feels about you. Starting with God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. And if you believe in him, you'd live forever. Boy, that's good stuff. And it just gets better. And it tells you what you're not supposed to do, what he doesn't like. So the first thing you do is you pick up the love letter. And then I said beyond that, you beg for that close relationship. Say, Lord, I want to get close to you. Ask him for it. I told you from First John, if you pray anything according to his will, he will hear you and he will answer. He wants a relationship with you. Beg for it. Read the love letter, and guess what? In that love letter, it tells us about this club we can join called the James 4 Club. And if you take time sometimes after this service to look at James chapter 4, it tells us if you want to get closer to the Lord and have a better relationship, which is the number one thing, submit yourself to Him. Resist the devil so he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and He's going to draw near to you. Man, beautiful stuff. Cleanse your hearts and your hands, you sinners and double-minded, he says. Do those things and he's going to get closer to you and he's going to start to bless you. You're going to start to feel those loving arms around you and you ain't going to worry about nothing else. Because Matthew 6.33 tells me that if I seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, that all other things will be added unto me. Loose translation, you get it right by having a relationship with God as close as it's supposed to be. Everything else works out. Everything else, just a side note, God's got it. Good stuff. We might have revival in a minute. As we think about that, he also said we need to humble ourselves in repentance. Boy, he said in in James 4, he said, I want you to lament and weep and mourn for your sin, for that which you have committed against me. And we need to get sorry for our sin. Beg forgiveness and prove to him that we're really sorry by repentance, turning from that sin and doing something. Too long have we as the church done whatever we wanted to do, knowing that His grace covered that and trampled all over His grace. Well, I don't know about you, but that's not all right with me. I know I'm forgiven for all things, but how stupid is it to hurt the one that loved me so much He died for me? You want to have a close relationship with Him? Beg for it, read the love letter, and join the James 4 Club. And then last night we said once we'd done that, we could begin to revive these other things. So we began to talk about righteousness. What is righteousness? We needed to define that. That's just a fancy church word. Most people have no clue what it means. It's also known as holiness, but righteousness is real simple. Here's the working definition for everyday man. It is being or doing what's right by God's definition. That's righteousness. That's holiness. And He commands it. He says, be ye holy. Didn't we read that in Leviticus 11? Then we read it again, re-quoted in 1 Peter 1. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Does that sound like a question or a suggestion? He said, oh, I wish you'd be holy because I'm holy. That ain't what he said. He said, be ye holy because I'm holy. You want to be with me? Be like me. And I throwed out a bunch of lies that we use in that. Well, I ain't as bad as sister so-and-so over here at the half-lying church of the tambourine. That don't make no difference. You're going to stand accountable for you, not just a so-and-so. So don't buy into that lie. And then there's that other one. Well, I ain't never going to be perfect, so why try? <laughs> that the best you got? No, you ain't never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be as good a pastor as Herbert Brown, but I'm going to die trying. Is that all right, Herbert? <laughs> 
Think about it. I can't be perfect, so I ain't going to try it all. I'll just be a knucklehead all my life. Don't do that. God said, be ye holy, for I am holy. And God has never asked you to do anything you cannot do. How cruel a joke would that be? Oh, I want you to be holy like I'm holy, and it ain't no possibility of it. He didn't ask you because you couldn't do it. He asked you because you knew with his help you could do it. So I'm glad that we decided last night to breathe new life into righteousness. Because I'll tell you, it's righteousness that earns God's grace and blessings. You need it. The church needs it. Our community needs it. And our country certainly needs it. We need God's grace, His undeserved blessings. And the only way He can bless is if we're blessable. And blessable equals righteousness. Be ye holy as He is holy. We need it. So I hope that even if you weren't here last night, that's enough to tell you. We have got to strive for holiness in living out righteousness in our lives, doing what is right, being what is right by God's definition. And how do you know what that is? It ain't changed in 4,000 years. Right here in black and white, and don't tell me you can't read it and can't understand it. Another lie straight from the pit of hell. The only reason you don't understand it is because you don't read it. Because he tells me here that if you're reading it in sincerity, the Holy Spirit will enlighten you. He will be your tutor. Oh, there's some hard principles in the Bible. But he'll enlighten you. I know he will because if this old boy can understand it, anybody can. So don't try that one either. Be ye holy as he is holy. But tonight we are saddened because we sit by the deathbed of another dear friend. Restraint. Restraint, if we want to say it's alive at all, is in its death throes. Restraint no longer exists in our country, and it's sad because restraint for so long protected us from the discipline of a holy and just God. You don't believe it, look around you. You don't think things are changing? Look at the, the occurrences of natural disasters now as opposed to what it was years ago. Look at what we're getting out of Washington now as opposed to what we got years ago. It ain't never been perfect, but it ain't never been like this garbage. Look at the judgments on our nation as I believe they are. Now, I'm not going to put everything on God. I hear preachers talking about every bad thing that happens is because God's, God's judging us. A lot of bad things that happen is self-inflicted, and it's just because we've ruined the environment and made a lot of stupid choices. Nonetheless, God has allowed those things in His permissive will, and so it becomes by default a judgment. And yet, as long as there was restraint, self-control, as long as it was still alive and kicking, we were being protected by God's mercy. Friends, restraint is the forerunner, the precursor, the necessity, our prerequisite for God's mercy. And if there is no restraint... God has no reason, no reason to continue to protect us. He will give us up to our own reprobate mind and ways. If you don't believe it, read this book that I've been reading for 30-some years now. It's there. But first, let me establish with you guys tonight whether or not you believe that restraint really has died. Because, I mean, some of you might think, gosh, he's getting all excited about nothing. Let me read to you some statistics that I dug up today. Now, this is today in America. In a nation that professes 230-plus million Christians, one in four teens has a sexually transmitted disease. That means if there's four teenagers here tonight, the likelihood, according to that statistic, of one of them having an STD is very high. 
adult entertainment, if you want to call it such. I call it filth, slime. I call it the media of Satan. But adult entertainment raised $10 billion in 2013. Let me just give you some kind of reference point for that. That's more than the National Hockey League, the National Football League, and Major League Baseball made last year combined. $10 billion. And even though a Time CNN poll said a few months ago that 90% of Americans believe that extramarital affairs are wrong, they also found that about 60% of all males over the age of 20 who were married have had or are headed towards an extramarital affair. And ladies, don't get excited. You didn't do much better. 40% of women over 20 who were married have had or are headed to an extramarital affair. Affair. Our own Federal Bureau of Investigation in the United States said that we had 14,827 murders in 2013. And catch this. That's higher than any other developed country. Almost 15,000 people. How about this one? The average American cares about $16,000 worth of unsecured credit card debt. 69% of Americans are clinically overweight or obese. And in the U.S. alone, more than 40% of our food supply is wasted, equaling about 20 pounds per person per month. Are you convinced that restraint is dead or at least dying? I hope you'd agree with me. And I'll tell you this, if you don't get nothing else, understand that this, a lack of restraint is unacceptable in the eyes of God. And it is unacceptable to anyone claiming the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you something, I stepped on every toe in here in that list I just laid out there some way, somehow. And I'm not trying to do that, but there'll be no revival if we aren't made a little uncomfortable, will there? Proverbs 25, 28 says, He that hath no rule, that word rule in the Hebrew was mastah, no restraint. He that hath no restraint over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. That's God's Word. He that doesn't have self-control or restraint is like a city that has fallen down and has broken walls. Now, you don't have to be the brightest bulb on the tree to know that a city that's broken down and has no walls ain't worth much. What is a city that's broken down and has no walls? A pile of garbage. And that's what we are if we have no self-control. We are of no real use to God in the kingdom if everything we do shows a lack of self-control because you can preach it until the, until the cows come home and people ain't listening. I will never forget there being free buffet lunch up here at what used to be the Farmer's Exchange restaurant or Farmer's Supply, whatever it was, and I was ashamed to be there as a Baptist minister. I really was. All the preachers in town found out there was free food. Man, they was flocking up there, and I was one of them. I mean, I like free. I ain't stupid. They didn't have to give it to me. They offered it, so I went on up there. And I'll tell you, I'd fix one plate, a modest plate, and I'd sit down and eat it. But I literally watched one man that could barely get through the door to the buffet go back over and over and over and over. And I'm going to tell you something. I wouldn't sit under that man. I couldn't sit under that man. Because if you have no self-control in such a thing as that, and it's such a bad witness in that area, what else is he messing up with? 
Now, I'm not saying any man can be perfect, and God forgive me if it's coming across that way. What I'm saying is that if we don't get it right, we can't show some self-control and restraint, then people are looking saying, well, if that's the best it gets, I don't want no part of it. And they got a point. It'll be a flimsy excuse when they stand before the Lord, but they got a point. Proverbs 29, 18, Where there is no vision, the people perish. They cast off restraint. But he that keepeth the law happy is he. Let me give you the translation directly from the Hebrew. Where there is no direction and focus on God, the people cast off self-control. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Well, shucks, don't we all want to be happy? And we need to get refocused on God, have direction from God, and follow through with self-control and restraint. Straight from the Scriptures. This ain't me talking. And then Galatians 5, 23. What do we find in Galatians 5? Let me just see if y'all really know your Bible. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. One big fruit of the Holy Spirit, and yet it has nine manifestations. And guess what one of them are in 523 of the book of Galatians? Temperance which means self-control. Restraint. Man, if the Spirit indwells you, you can have self-control, and He expects it. In fact, if you are not self-controlled, you are squelching the Holy Spirit. You are pushing Him aside saying, i got a better plan. Well, I don't, I don't want to be standing on that. I want to follow through with what the Spirit is guiding me to do. That's my teacher. That's my comforter. That's my enlightener. That's my strength and my power. I don't have a better plan. I personally will tell you tonight, I've got to get a better handle on this. I've got to breathe new life into restraint. God expects it. We see it right here in these verses, Proverbs 25, Proverbs 29 and Galatians 5. So how is it that we can possibly breathe life into this dying one that God demands? I'm glad you ask. Here's the crux of the message. You've got to determine in your mind and heart to tame it like the wild animal that it is. Self-controlled is a wild animal. The lust of the flesh is actually the wild animal. We tame it with the self-control. Just like you tame a horse. Man, you don't get a fresh horse who's green and just jump on his back and start riding. Not unless you want a couple of concussions and a visit to the emergency room. Man, you've got to break that thing. You've got to get it where it can trust you. You've got to get it where you've beaten it into submission if it comes down to it. And you might need to get that thing in a halter. There are other animals that need to be tamed that we actually have to keep on a leash or something of the sort. But James 3, 7 says every beast of the world has been tamed by man. It's been reined in, restrained by man. And this one can be as well. We need to force our will into submission to self-control. Listen to the Spirit and do what it's saying. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells me that it's possible. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'm going to read that one instead of just quoting it off my head here. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape it that you may also be able to bear it. You hear this misquoted all the time. Oh, God ain't going to put more on you than you can bear. (laughs) God put more on me than I could bear today. But He didn't put me there without a way out. He didn't put me under any temptation that I couldn't stand up to and show some self-control and walk away from. 
And He will not for you either. So don't tell me, I, I just couldn't resist. And that story about Herbert killing that turkey, that just won't true. Just won't true. But boy, we've been in them positions, ain't we, where we just hear that little voice saying, Go on, it's all right, go on. Ain't no big deal, you're going to be forgiven, go on, do it. That little devil on the shoulder trying to convince you of it, and you say, the devil made me do it. Y'all remember Flip Wilson? <laughs> Flip Wilson and Geraldine, his woman counterpart. Man, he'd dress up like Geraldine, and he'd say, the devil made me do it. The devil ain't made you do nothing. You don't do nothing else you don't want to do. I guarantee if I asked your wife or your husband, they'd tell me that's true. <laughs> he or she don't do anything they don't want to do. The devil didn't make you do anything. He tempted you, and that's not the problem. You're going to be tempted. Temptation's not a sin. But it's when you give in to it because of a lack of self-control. And you say, i got a better plan than God. And I'm going to go on and do it because I couldn't help it. Don't tell me you couldn't help it. It's a lie. You need to get that thing tamed. And here's the big one. You need to refocus. Where there is no direction or understanding... Or focus on God, the people cast off restraint? What I tell you as we ended last night, if you really want to be righteous, you need to be cross-eyed. Keep your eyes on the cross and what happened on it. Keep your eyes on Jesus and things are going to be all right. We need to refocus. So let's pick up right there. We need to be certain that our vision is not clouded by the world and it's a lure. We need to remember 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Listen to this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man, and that includes you too, ladies, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Boy, that hurts. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away. It's temporary. You get that? Man, you're throwing off self-control for temporary junk that's promising you some kind of satisfaction, but it's always a lie. Those are empty promises. The world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that doth the will of, the, of God abideth forever. Folks, we need to refocus. We need to do it now more than ever, or restraint is dead. When the world looks at the church now, what do they see? They see compromise on a level that has never been seen before in the history of the church. And I hope it rings in your ears. God expected to look down into the world and see the church, but He did not expect to look down into the church and see the world. We've got to get this right. People's eternal destiny depends upon this. The future of our country and our world depends upon this. We need to breathe new life into self-control and restraint. And so to do that, to give you an example of how it should be done and how it should not be done, give you sort of a, just sort of a look at how, how it is, how it shouldn't be. Let's go to 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11. We're going to look at two case studies, one with Brother David that we talked a little bit last night. Not me, but David, the king of Israel. And then we're going to look at old Brother Joseph. So in 2 Samuel 11... What has happened up to this point, just to bring you up to speed, he is the king of Israel at this point. He is beloved. He's done some good things. He's been out conquering all kinds of nations who were heathen nations, just like God told him to do. But his focus begins to shift. You see, as long as God was walking with David and vice versa, things were all right. His focus was on God. Everything was working out. Things were good. He was being blessed. That's just the way it works. 
But at this point, he begins to focus on former glories. He begins to focus on self-satisfaction and gratification. Happens to the best of us. So in verse 11, we find the account of Bathsheba that I alluded to last night. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent Joab, saying, Send me Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did, and how the people did, and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house, and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord, and he went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down unto his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said unto Uriah, Tarry here today also. Tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. Verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he had signed Uriah into a place where he knew the valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. But then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When thou hast made an end to telling of the matters of the war unto the king, and if it so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, Wherefore approached ye so nigh unto the city when ye did fight? Knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Excuse me. Did not a woman cast a piece of a millstone upon him from the wall that he died in Tebez? Why went ye nigh to the wall? And say thou, Thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went, came and showed David all that Joab had sent him for. The messenger said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out us into the field. And we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from the wall upon thy servants. And some of the king's servants be dead. And thy servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus 
shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house. She became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, you know this story, but let me just give you an overview of what's going on. It says in the very beginning it came to pass after the year was expired. All these battles had gone on. David's starting to get self-gratified. He's focused on himself instead of the Lord. That it says this was a time when kings go forth to battle. But it says David stayed home. That was his first mistake. You know, you can exercise a lot less self-control if you just not be in the wrong place. Over the course of about 19 years of ministry, I've had so many ladies call me, I need to talk. I need counseling. I need help. I need this. I need that. And I'm always going to say yes. But my wife's always going to be with me. You know, if we just keep ourselves out of bad situations, we'd be in a whole lot better shape to start with and have to exercise a whole lot less self-restraint. But David messed up right out of the gate. It says, when the kings went forth to battle... Well, he was the king, but he decided to kick back and stay home. So he's in the palace, wrong place at the wrong time, and the enemy will exploit anything like that. Do not take yourselves to places where temptation is inevitable, ever. Why find out where your limits are? Start there. But he didn't. And it came to pass that one night he goes out on top of the palace, which was higher than most of the other houses, of course, and he looks down, and there's Bathsheba. Beautiful woman bathing naked on her roof. Now, I told you last night, ladies, just don't do that. That's dangerous. Man, everybody's going to metal roofs now. Man, that thing's like a slip and slide. Don't get up there. Don't be bathing on the roof. But don't be a cause for temptation for other men. She messed up right there. She shouldn't have been anywhere where somebody could see. And boy, I could preach ten messages on modesty here. Whatever happened to that? And I don't want to run a rabbit too far, but I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes the young ladies that come in our church, I'm just thinking, what in the world? They come in wearing these duck skirts. You ever heard of that? Every time they move, you see they quack? <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> and look, it's funny. It's funny, but isn't that sad? Let me tell you something, ladies and young ladies. Cover it up. I get this all the time. What's the dress code out there at Antioch? I said covered. <laughs> it's covered. Just cover all the necessities. Man. But as I said, running rabbits, ladies, just be modest. Bathsheba was anything but. She shouldn't have been in a position to be like that. He sees her. He desires her because she's beautiful. And women, remember this. Men are visually stimulated. Don't make it worse on them. Don't make them have to exercise that much self-restraint. You say, well, listen, I should be able to wear whatever I want to. Yeah, you should. But the way it is, you can't. You need to be modest. But moving right along, he sees her, he wants her. He says, who is that? That woman's hot. Who is that? And they said, well, ain't that Uriah's wife? I'm sure that's the way it went. I'm pretty sure that's Uriah's wife. Oh, yeah, that's who it is. And he said, well, uh, go get her. They went and get her. And he committed adultery, fornication, all in one fell swoop. 
Because it says here he lay with her. And I'm telling you, they weren't laying on the roof of the palace looking at stars. That's just fancy wording to say they had sexual intercourse. Just the way it was. That's what happened. With another man's wife. The king did this. He's supposed to be setting the example, just like we're supposed to be setting the example. So when we mess up, the rest of the world says, oh, okay, well, if that's the example, I'll do it too. But he sleeps with her. The woman went back home, and she comes back to him and says, oh, guess what? I'm going to have a baby. I'm with child. She won't hold in somebody else's kid. She was getting ready to have one. And you know, that was his kid. You say, how do you know? Because it says here, after the time of her purification, he lay with her. Now, I ain't going to go too deep in that, but it just means her time of the month had just happened. That was his baby. No doubt about it. That's why that little detail's there. And David said, oh, my goodness, go bring Uriah. He starts to do one of the first and best government cover-ups. This makes Watergate look like nothing. It does, man. He says, go get Uriah. Bring that rascal on up here. I'm going to try to make it look like he did this and that. Because, listen, back then, a woman that got pregnant with another man that was not her husband would be taken out in the streets and stoned according to the law. And the man who did it was to be killed. So David begins this big old scandal cover-up. He says, get him in here. Let's see if we can figure this thing out. He calls him in, sends him home with a great big old meal, and he says, Go and enjoy. You've been awesome for me, Uriah. You're one of my mighty men. You've been fighting so hard. You deserve a break. Come on, get you a break. Here's some food. Go have a nice meal with your wife and, and lay with her. You know, do, do, do what husbands and wives do. He thought he was going to get it all fixed. Uriah was a man of honor and self-control. I believe Uriah was walking with the Lord. Uriah said, that's not right. He went down and he slept outside on the porch. Not at his house, right there at the palace with some of the other men. He said, the Ark of the Covenant is out there. Your men are out there. My brothers in arms are fighting to protect this country. And I'll stay here tonight, but I'm not going to go out there and enjoy all of that fancy food and the luxury of being with my wife when my other brothers can't enjoy that. That's just not fair. I love you, king, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> well, the government cover-up is about to fall apart. So David said, I've got to do something else. He brings him back in and gets him drunk. He said, now, go home and be with your wife. Well, Uriah, even drunk, being gotten wrongfully drunk, which, again, I, that's a question in that story to me. Why did he do it? But anyway, he's with the king. I'm sure he felt some obligation, but he's drunk. And even then, he said, nope, not going to do it. He held to his principles. First of all, you need to determine what your principles are, and I hope they're the righteousness that we talked about last night. Amen. They're God's principles. But then once you have them, you need to stand by them, come hell or high water. That's the problem, compromise. But he, comp he, he did not compromise. He said, I'm not going to do it. So in the end, then David sends him right out to the front line. He signs his death warrant. David might as well have just stuck a sword through his heart. He said, send Uriah out to the hottest part of the battle, right there on the front line, knowing he'd been killed. And then he gets word back from a messenger that he had, in fact, been killed. What happens after that is Bathsheba goes through this little false mourning ceremony, which is about seven days in that culture. And then they get married, and they have a son. So they all live happily ever after, right? All except for Uriah, and he was right with the Lord, so he went on home to be with the Lord. All's well that ends well, right? Wrong. Wrong. If you read on the rest of the story, that child died. And I believe it was a judgment straight from God. You say, how could God do that? How could a just God not? David knew better. We know better. And somehow we expect we're just going to keep on thumbing our nose at God's righteousness and at the things He says thou shalt not do and get away with it. 
God is love, but God is holiness. God is just. He can't not punish us. And that child died because a just God decided to allow that to happen. And that was merciful to the child because Ecclesiastes 7 1 says, Better is the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. That child busted heaven wide open, and I believe it with all my heart. Because David says right there in the Scripture, if we read on, that I can't see him now that he's sick. He might be away from me, but when he goes to heaven, I can see him again. I believe that child went to heaven as all babies do before that age of accountability, before they know better. So that child didn't suffer. I mean, with an example like David and Bathsheba, he was a lot better off. But all of that happened. All of that happened. Why? Because David knew what was right and had no self-control. He let the lust of the flesh and a few fleeting moments of pleasure override what was right. A man that God had blessed. A little shepherd boy that he pulled out of the field and made king of the greatest nation on the planet. He just looked at him and said, no, I got a better plan. I want to have sex with that woman. And he was willing to barter away everything for that. On the false promise of having fun. Well, I bet it won't real fun when his son died. Look at the flip side of that. Drop back 600 years to Genesis chapter 39. That was a case study in what not to do. You want to know how not to act, how not to exercise self-control? Pull a David. You want to know how to get it right? Pull a Joseph. Man, this is a real Bible hero to me right here, folks. When you get to chapter 39 of Genesis, you know that at this point, Joseph had been walking with the Lord so closely that God had given him real vivid visions and dreams and understanding of what the future would be, prophetic dreams. And Joseph was smart enough and close enough to the Lord. He had that relationship we talked about all day Sunday, and tonight he had that right. And so he was walking with the Lord. Things are going good, but his brothers get jealous. They throw him over in a pit. They were going to leave him there, and then they thought, wait, we can make a few, a few dollars on this guy. They sold him for 20 pieces of silver, the price of a slave to the Ishmaelites. And so as the Ishmaelites and the Midianites take him, they sell him to Potiphar. And that's where we pick up in, verse, in chapter 39, verse 1. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him and he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. But it came to pass from the time that when he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. And he hath committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph, day by 
away, that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got him out. And it came to pass, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, that she fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and spake unto them, saying, See, he hath brought in an Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass, when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he had left his garment in my hand with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spoke unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass, when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, and his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. What an incredible story of self-control and restraint. Man, would that many more Christians would pull a Joseph instead of pulling a David. Joseph was in the worst of circumstances. He'd been thrown in a pit by his own brothers. Talk about sibling rivalry. They throwed the brother in a pit. And then they said, well, no, let's not leave him there. Let's make a little money on him. Twenty despicable pieces of silver. They sell him just like a slave, their own flesh and blood, their own brother, all because of their jealousy and lack of restraint. But God was with him. He was sold to Potiphar, who was one of the chiefs, one of those who was an officer, a captain in Pharaoh's army. So this guy, he was no scrub. He was pretty high up. So he's put into this nice home as a slave. That's a plus. I mean, if you've got to be a slave, you want to be in a palace, right? Well, he was. And he worked hard. Man, boy, we might not be where we want to be in life, but we can bloom where we're planted. We can do the best with what we got. Joseph worked himself silly. Whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. Whether you eat or drink, do it unto the glory of God. He got it. He understood that. It says he worked hard, and he found grace in his master's sight. And everything he did prospered because God was with him. He was focused on God while David was focused on David. And because of that, he ends up being the chief steward. He's in charge of everything. He tells his wife there, he says, look, this man don't even know what he's got anymore except for the bread that's in his hand because he's put me in charge of everything. And he had worked his way right straight to the top. Well, you see those stars like that come through sometimes in the church or where you work. They come in out of nowhere, but they work their butts off and they earn their way to the top. They climb that ladder quickly and they deserve it, especially when we're sitting by being lazy doing nothing and they're working hard. Oh, we don't like it. We get jealous of that, get frustrated. Oh, who are they? Well, they're hard workers. That's what they are. They're blooming where they planted. And they will find grace and favor in the sight of man and of God. Well, he had done that. But 
Here comes temptation. When things start going well, the devil ain't happy. And the closer you walk with God, the more unhappy the devil is. The more your focus is on that cross and the one who died on it, the more he's going to pick on you, take it as a compliment. But for crying out loud, understand that you do not have to give in to it because the fruit of the Spirit or a part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Don't give in to the temptation. Joseph didn't. Now, I don't know what Potiphar's wife looked like. I really think that's irrelevant, but I would say this. I would speculate that if he was a captain of the Pharaoh's army, he probably didn't marry a scrub either. He probably had enough money, enough wealth, enough influence to go out and get him a pretty little lady. So I imagine Potiphar's wife was pretty decent. Really. And she's trying to seduce this man. Says she turns her eyes towards him. Boy, I like that language. Turns her eyes toward him. In other words, she wanted him. She lusted after him. She had no control. And she was willing to do whatever to get what she wanted. says, come and lie with me. And she won't say, come, let's tell some stories. Again, she said, come on, let's get in bed together. Let's have sex. It don't matter that you're not my husband or my husband's not here. None of that matters. I want you, so I'm going to take it. Boy, isn't that the way it is? If I want it, I'll do it. But he looks at her, and I love what he says in verse 9, showing great restraint, Christian self-control, letting the Spirit rule and reign in his heart. He said, there's none greater in this house than I. Your husband has not even kept back anything from me except for you because you are his wife. He's concerned with the man who is here on earth saying, I don't I don't, 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 I don't,